Thank you, Johan. That was actually quite brave. Usually people just say naba, because they don't even want to try <laughs> and say something in Italian. Uh, it's very nice to be here. I've been thinking of coming for quite a long time, and we've had a conversation now uh, for almost two years, I think, or a year and a half. So uh, it's been very nice to you know, start getting to know the city and start getting to imagine what I might do um, here. So. I'm going to show you a range of projects that are... I start from the present. So the first things I'm going to talk to you about are things that I'm actually doing right now, that are going on right now. Um, I'm not going to go like way back in history, but um, this is something that I was talking about earlier, actually, that I, 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 I often think that most of the talks I see, people talk about things that are already old for them. You know, because they're finished, they're digested, they're kind of sorted. You know, quite often writers present books that they might have published four or five years ago, which means they've finished them six, seven years ago. You know, it often takes like two years for a book to be published. And, um, and it means that you end up always having a conversation that's not actually current for all the people in the room. So I, I just thought I'd try and present some things that are happening right now. So um, I start with display show which uh, Display Show is now in its third iteration. It's been a traveling exhibition that I have co-curated with two um, of the other founding members from Eastside Projects, this artist-run collective in Birmingham that uh, Johan was mentioning. James Langdon, who is a very brilliant graphic designer that I have been working with for a very long time, and Gavin Wade, who in a, is an artist curator um, also runs Eastside Projects, but somebody who I worked with for a very long time, we had a collaborative practice called Support Structure, which ended in the book that uh, Johan was actually holding. So the Curated By is a collaboration. Um, now, the reason for doing this show and for talking about it today is that, in a way, Display Show presents one of the sort of major... Uh, uh, issues that I've been looking at in the last couple of years, which is that of display. Um, I'll go back to the poster in a second, but um, you know, it's somehow summarized here. This is not where I found it for the first time, but this image really summarizes what I mean. Um, this comes from the Kiesler archive. You might not have heard of Frederick Kiesler. He was a bit of an obscure, uh, slightly esoteric architect that was born Austrian and emigrated to the United States, where he stayed forever. He never went back to Austria. Um, some of his most important work was done in the 40s. So um, he uh, is most famous, if he's famous, he's not famous, but he's most famous <laughs> for doing designing the Peggy Guggenheim's gallery in New York, so before the Guggenheim Museum. Peggy Guggenheim has had this extraordinary collection of European art that she brought to the United States, and she commissioned Frederick Kiesler, who had done basically nothing by then, to make the gallery that was going to be called Art of This Century, you know, like quite an ambitious thing. And he made hundreds and hundreds of sketches to try and uh, define, understand, uh, reinvent the relationship that people may have with art. And he does that through very physical means, the display devices. So this thing, you know, like the fact that, you know, you're holding art for someone to see or to perceive. This is the position that Kiesler takes that I think is so interesting. You know, he decides that he's going to be the person who stands in between the architectural fabric, whatever it is that the context has, and the work to be shown. And that you have to show it. It has to be a gesture. It has to be like a willful gesture um, in order to hold things for people to, uh, to perceive. Now, from, from this, I started being... Uh, in a way, quite interested in what that position means. You know, what does it mean to take this position of mediation, of translation, of you know, being behind the art as we know it? Um, and somehow, these some of these ideas are what underpin the the display show as as a whole, which of course is an exhibition. So it's just one part of the things that I'm doing. Um, Display Show is a curated exhibition that contains works by other artists. It also contains works by myself, because I've been working on display for quite a long time. And this is a piece that 
um, I'm showing you here because it comes directly from Kiesler in a way. It's called the Swindelier. Uh, it was first presented last year, uh, commissioned by Maria Lind at Tensar Constant for an exhibition on Kiesler. And I was thinking of what it means to work with the conditions of the space. And uh, the Swindelier is a sculpture, but it also adjusts the climate of an exhibition. So it adjusts the ventilation, it's connected to the lighting system, it's got a soundtrack, and it's got a sort of diagram that allows you to read the show. So it's a sculpture, but it's also like a lighting panel. You know, it's somehow infrastructural, even though it's got this very sculptural presence. Now you only see it with a light on, but the the it was it is connected to the lights of the gallery that go on and off on a different rhythm, and this is a direct quote to Kiesler. It's Kiesler, I think, who for the first time ever, probably, in 1942 in the Art of the Century, so the gallery I was talking about, makes an exhibition that is not always lit. The lights go from one wall to the other, and there's a soundtrack. You hear the sound of a roaring train traversing the space, and in some ways, we I mean, of course. You know, none of this is documented because you can't take photographs of darkness nor of sound. So we know this from journalists of the time who thought it was absolutely crazy what was happening in that gallery and who wrote about it. And from those descriptions, I also tried to reconstruct somehow a score for what this sculpture had to do. So the idea that exhibitions didn't have to be silent and they didn't have to be static, in some ways I attribute to... Kiesler. And with that, the fact that display, of course, doesn't need to be neutral at all, but it's always a set of conditions presented to us by certain people, you know, who are named or unnamed. Um, on the Swindelier is this diagram, which um, I call the strategy of everything, because this is how I work. This basically is my uh, operating thinking diagram. I don't know if you can read it. Uh, you start from existing conditions. Number two is new function or a new incentive. From the existing conditions, there is something that you want, that you want to do, that you imagine, that you desire. And from that desire comes a new object or a new objective, which becomes the next existing conditions for the next person to work with. So this, the fact that wherever you work, you're always part of this kind of ongoing, fluid, uh, constancy altering uh, process is something that I really very strongly try to follow. So I'm just one of the people who's working. There's many people before me. There's many people after me. Um, okay, so back to display show. There's... Um, Something else, like it's kind of human scale, actually. Um, this is called After Image. Um, it's kind of a room divider. This is also an artwork by me that uh, tries to um, well, it articulate light and space in the same way that room dividers do. It's, it's called After Image, in parenthesis, um, uh, Gray and Bayer, because it is after Eileen Gray and Herbert Bayer. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more about this, but I think you know part of the discourse on display is that there isn't very much of a history of display. We actually haven't got that many books on the history of display because we usually document the history of artworks or the history of buildings, not so much the history of how things have been used, which is precisely why I'm interested in display, right? Because part of what I'm saying is that if you show something like this or like that, the perception of it is completely different. So um, something that has to do with that is also to be able to learn from the past. No? And that's where the after, in all of my titles I'll have afters, that's where all the after somehow comes from. So uh, after image takes two existing positions in relationship to display, which are those of Eileen Gray, Irish designer, and Herbert Weyer, American exhibition designer and designer, and tries to reactualize them by sort of unfolding them, unfortunately, in front of a McDonald's. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> this is in, uh, in a Temple Bar Gallery in Dublin, which was the first display show. Um, so sort of using that separation between public and private space, which is really the window, and opening it up 
towards thinking how to articulate, um, you know, a separation. So in terms of the poster, I'm actually going backwards. This is this was the first. No, this was the second poster. Now you you might be able to see the difference between the poster I started with. Because the project accumulates, the poster accumulates too. That's another way of talking about the things that have happened before. So we overprint on the existing paper stock of the poster the next show. So there's artists that are not there anymore, other artists that were added, other colors. Um, now, this idea of the cumulative is something I'm going to talk about a bit further with other works. This is how Displacia looked at our east side, so last autumn. Um, I don't know how much detail I should uh, talk about somehow, but um, I mean, obviously, it gathers both contemporary practices of people or works that I have encountered. Like, for instance, on the very front here, you see uh, stage by Amelia Pika, as seen on Afghanistan, who is somebody I've met. I'd never seen the work, but I've had a relationship with this uh, stage for quite a long time. And then on the background, other things that uh, we've experimented with more literally, the idea of wallpaper as background on in front of it, this thing, this wall here, which is actually which is actually a wall that I first saw in a photograph by Christopher Williams, uh, probably about 10 years ago. Um, Secession, which is, I think, one of the first artist-founded uh, galleries or museums in Vienna, had a mobile wall system for their exhibitions that Christopher Williams photographed. Because we were interested in display, and here I'm talking with Gavin, we decided to borrow the wall from Secession, who put it on a truck, sent it to us, and then when we got it, we just replicated it so that we could make our own wall system and hang Christopher Williams on top of it. So it's like a sort of a, you know, you continue working with things and they kind of turn on their head, but it allows us to develop uh, an understanding of what display is over a number of years. So this is what's happening in this image. There's actually a lot of layers of working. Um, here, um, another after, the a uh, piece by Goshka Makuga, which is called Abstract Cabinet, because it is after the Abstract Cabinet by Lisitsky that he designed in 1926. Um, what's interesting about that is that I think it's, you know, there's very few artworks that are made to contain other artworks for other people. So the idea of a frame in a three-dimensional way. Uh, here are the two walls uh, supporting Christopher Williams' Um, here after image in a different context and also supporting, so being the background for a new work, which is a painting by Nathalie Dupasquier, um, which you see on top. Um, a library, I mean, reading is perhaps another way of experimenting or experiencing exhibitions. Here are the books of Rita McBride, who actually, whose art objects inhabit the world of fiction. So this is the little reading room that I made for her. I know it looks nothing like a reading room, by the way, but that's what it is. Um, Heim Steinbeck on the left, one of the, should we call him the grandfather of display? I'm sure he wouldn't like that. But uh, uh, no, one of the people I have learned a lot about display from, let's say, and uh, the Colin Richards on, on the right. Um, much younger artists were invited to work with these older positions and historical positions in order to develop also, uh, uh, you know, contemporary works that were really of their time. And here, this beautiful room by Florneuve Jusserin, who is a French artist based in London, who has made these perforated walls that I ended up also working with. It looks formally very similar to this. Uh, unbeknown to her, there are perforated walls that I saw in a building in Brazil designed by Lina Bobardi. That's where this is, that is actually based from. Um, this is something, this is a picture from my iPhone that I took just before coming here. It's like literally I saw it for the first time three days ago. Uh, <laughs> it's a curtain work. I make quite a lot of curtain works. I'm interested in curtains. That was uh, made, the commission was from the Luma Foundation and Bard, who organized this conference in the south of France uh, this last week. I don't even know what day it is, last week, I think. Mm -hmm. um, the, they asked, they commissioned an artwork 
to be used during the conference to somehow, you know, it's an institution that's going to be about art. There's no art there yet. Um, and I proposed a curtain work that would include, would somehow, sorry, wrap this symposium. Um, and, in, and, and in that sense, also be able to project a possible fiction towards the future. So this is it is called All Our Tomorrows. The institution, the uh, conference was called How Do Institutions Think? So I've got a few images here. It's actually a drawing. It's like a one-to-one -one drawing of some holes in concrete walls that I uh, saw in a somehow like a mythical institution in, in Brazil by Lina Bobardi. So I used the ghost of one institution to talk about the possible future of another institution. But um, I was quite pleased to see it worked quite well, actually. Which, you, you know, you don't always know before something happens. It's completely functional object. I'm really interested in the idea of, you know, objects being functional and formal at the same time. So the thing about curtains... You know, it, like in architecture, curtains are always like the last thing that nobody really wants to think about and gets added at the end, maybe when the people move in. In art, curtains are always also a little bit like the last thing, either to measure light or when a painting doesn't quite make it onto the canvas. No, they've got that sort of slightly uncomfortable position of being a little bit too much like interior design. Um, so that's one thing that interests me, you know, the thing that is considered unessential extra. It's got that little extra thing. And then something else is that, of course, curtains have huge roles in defining space, actually. You know, they, they separate day from night, for instance. You draw the curtains at night, they separate inside from outside, public from private. So from this thing that has almost no... Um, it's not matter, right? I mean, a curtain is nothing until it's hung. It's got no shape. Um, it needs to be uh, supported or hung in order to hold its shape you get this, almost this instrument of division, you know, totally counterintuitively. Um, so that's, that's the thing about the typology of curtains that really interests me. And also, you know, then I use curtains also as drawings, because of course, it's like having a one-to-one -one enormous projection of something that might be. Um, and here, there's a pause, <laughs> I think. So this is what I'm doing right now. Um, and uh, I haven't got a timer here. How am I doing with time? Okay. Um, this is um, well. What I th what I thought I would talk about now is actually uh, try to describe the experience of navigating an exhibition, like you know, trying to think of a set of uh, conditions, spatial conditions, as I've been somehow mentioning, which is something I'm interested in working here at the IMA, you know, to try and find a way of uh, working with existing conditions. Um, so this is one way that I've, I've somehow done it before. And I'm using an exhibition that I did last year at Hangar Bicocca in Milan, which was called Bao Bao. So, the, the exhibition starts with a piece called Alteration to Existing Conditions. It is what it says on the box, um, which um, includes uh, the insertion of an extraction fan at the entrance that pumps air from the street into the gallery past a window um, which is opened into here, actually, at Chisenhail Gallery, but also at... Uh, Hangar Bicocca, and through this movement of air and light allows you to navigate the exhibition because you walk towards the light and you walk following the flow of air. This is apparently something that is totally intuitive. Nobody needs to tell you this. You always walk towards the light, or at least that's what 90% of people would do. So in this case, alteration to existing conditions allows me to structure the navigation of an exhibition without even saying anything. Um, and that, I think, is quite an interesting uh, way to work, you know, to see how people inhabit space in movement, of course, because they always do, you know, in movement and time. Um, in this case, I used curtains to separate day and night, so the dark part of the exhibition from the light part of the exhibition, which has natural light, so part of the 
alteration to existing conditions, obviously, was opening a window which otherwise was not in this space, which I think you see here, um, through which you can see a flashing neon, which is the title of the show, Bao Bao. Bao Bao means absolutely nothing in English, <laughs> but in, uh, in Italian, it's the sound of a barking dog. Woof, woof. <laughs> and uh, in German, Bauer is construction, right? You know, like Neubau or Bauhaus. Um, I'll come back to this title. Um, so somewhere on the wall, in, I try to always have the sort of credits, the exhibition production uh, credits. So this is something that I really work with that is part of this piece uh, called Alteration to Existing Conditions. So remember I talked about the diagram in which you're only ever another person who intervenes into the world in which other people have worked with. But I try and name that, what that is. And I do these exhibition credits, which you can probably just about read. So this one is a photograph of how it was at the Van Abbe Museum. This is in 2014. And the reason why there's this kind of like background thing is that it was on top of an existing uh, wall text by Hito Steyer. Um, so I didn't paint over her show entirely. I kept part of it because she was also part of the existing conditions. And it reads like this. So, material fabrication. We have joined together to execute functional constructions and to alter or refurbish existing structures. That's not very catchy, but it is what it is. Um, it starts on the 3rd of May, 1977, functional by My Michael Asher. There's an execution, then there's another three exhibitions here. Maybe it's hard to read, but if anyone's interested, I always think that you can sort of dig and start understanding what, what happens. So it's obvious that the last one at the bottom is the show that you're actually seeing. And these are the names of all the technicians who actually built it with me, without whom it wouldn't have been possible. Now, of course, some of these works came from a previous exhibition at Chisenhe, which is also named with all of the people who installed that with me. So that, you know, that is quite easy. You get the cumulative labor of the last two. And then... I intervene into a space that has another exhibition that has to be taken down for mine to go up, because this is what exhibitions are. Now you spend a lot of energy deleting people's work in order to start from scratch and building it again. So that's heat of style. And then, you know, what's between 1977 and 2014? That's a mystery. <laughs> but I will explain it. <laughs> um, so the piece, Alteration to Existing Conditions, includes opening a window, right? Letting natural light in. At the Van Abbe Museum, there are no windows. The only thing I could open was the roof. And the roof had this like really beautiful, quite complex louver system to measure natural light. So by taking off the sort of glass ceiling, that's what you saw. And then I went to the archive and found that somebody else had done that before. And it was Michael Asher in 1977. It's quite lucky because he's somebody I really hugely admire. Otherwise, I don't know what I would, what I would have done. But in 1977, Michael Asher, a sort of, uh, uh, I don't even know what to call him, like perhaps one of the most important contributions to institutional critique, uh, makes an exhibition in this major museum in Europe. So he's from California. He travels to Europe and spends the three months of his exhibition taking off the architecture of the museum roof skylights with technicians in the show taking it off and putting it back on for three months. So what he shows is basically the architecture of the exhibition itself. right? So by opening the window, though, what I have done in some ways is exactly reconstructing Michael Asher, which is why he was in the credits. You know, so it's a way of making work with work that also acknowledges the previous work. Anyway, that's, and it also allowed me to have natural light in the show and no artificial light, which, of course, as you know, really changes how you perceive things. I have plants growing in quite a lot of my shows, so they kind of also need natural light to grow. They were very happy in this room. They completely started overgrowing the, um, the, the sculpture, which I, I'll talk about a little bit. Now, I've told you also about curtains. There's a curtain here that was here last year that you may have seen. In terms of the idea of curtains separating things, uh, the curtain that was here 
structure for communicating with wind is made out of space blanket, which is an insulation material. So it's even more insulating than curtains normally are. And this is the um, a piece called Abra le Corps, which is dedicated to Amalia Pica, um, which eventually the plants will totally overgrow. Maybe they already have, actually. I don't know. I haven't seen it for a few months. Um, so Abra le Corps is a dialogue between a steel structure and some plants. The plants are philodendrons. They have a heart-shaped leaf. They're the only climbers that don't kill the thing that they're climbing on, but somehow protect it. Um, ideally, if they are taken care of enough, the plants will completely um, overgrow the sculpture. But then that's what the work is. Um, OK. So next, um, next thing, on, in terms of like the working together, this idea of cumulative labor, there's something else at stake here, which is something that I you know, call friendship, that I think is really important in the making of things. Um, this is called Spatial Com Composition 11. It's actually made out of concrete, but it's also made to the measurements of John Tilbury's piano stool. John Tilbury's... Um, um, amazing minimalist pianist who uh, is best known for being somehow the, I think, the, the best interpreter of Morton Feldman's music. He's also a huge improviser. He works with the prepared piano. Do you know what that is? The prepared piano is um, something that John Cage somehow started doing, which is to insert things inside the piano so it does what you want it to do, which it didn't. So it's like a, an adjusted instrument, say. So he customizes his instruments, uh, which is why he really also interests me. Um, now, that piece was dedicated to John, like the other piece was dedicated to Amalia, because I tried to work with friendship explicitly as one of the conditions in which, so it's not a spatial condition, it's an emotional and intellectual condition, uh, without which I couldn't do any work, of course, like most people. So all of the works from this series are dedicated to people who I could never have made this work without. Um, this will make sense. So spatial composition is dedicated to John. He also sits on it um, to uh, play inside the exhibition. So the, the entire event, series of events, is always about inhabiting one of the pieces, uh, which also suddenly means that the curtains do divide public and private, or sort of crowd of people. It also means that the way to inhabit an exhibition becomes completely different. Of course, when there's an event like a concert, people sit on work, inhabit um, an exhibition. This is at Chisenheim Gallery last year. Um, but this is how it happened at Hangar Bikoka. So John's sitting on another work that was also made for him called Structure for Preparing the Piano. Um, this is what he does when he prepares the piano, by the way. But I'll show you what I mean. It's a, it's a film, it's about, yeah, four and a half minutes.
that makes sense. Um, it's only when I saw John playing that I understood how there could be a different relationship to artworks, because his relationship to objects is that of an instrument. So he takes care of his piano, but it's the thing that he plays. He makes work with it. And it's interesting to me, because also the structure of um, labor relations, I mean, I can talk about it in a more poetic way as well, but the, the, you know, the structure of labor relations in music is always very, very clear, much clearer than it is in art in the sense that you know that, I don't know, like a, a poster advertising a concert with John Tilbury playing Morton Feldman, we know who the composer is, sorry, we know who the composer is, we know who the musician is, nobody's taking anything away from anyone. Uh, you know, it's like in the film industry. Labor relations are so structured. You know, there's such a history of unions, that's where it comes from, that roles are much more defined. And in that way, roles to objects, behaviors to objects are also much more defined. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Also, as a, as a model to work together, you know, as a model of something that isn't necessarily collaboration, but is collaborative, isn't necessarily making friendship, but of course it's friendly, and um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense in the sense of how you might work with musicians. So uh, I, you know, I, I gave John and John, John and John, John Lilly is actually uh, one of John Tilbury's ex-students, and he uh, he's somebody who builds instruments, which is one of the reasons why we started talking. Um, I gave them an exhibition that was already choreographed. You know, it had like a sort of time delay system, lights coming on and off, uh, music coming on and off. I, I offered it to them as a possible thing to be played. And they sort of inhabited it with their own instruments, somehow adjusting the exhibition, but then playing it for a whole day. So that's what that film is about, which for me was... You know, the, the, both the pleasure and the luxury of seeing something that you've made uh, just, you know, suddenly have its own life and become something else. You know, becoming their work, becoming a totally different experience. Um, uh, that's very precious experience. It's still quite fresh for me. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it, but something else will happen <laughs> also with it. Uh, I've worked with soundtracks of exhibitions before, for instance but I've never played exhibitions or asked somebody to play an exhibition. Um, so, Bao Bao. Um, something else about Bao Bao. Yeah, this is an animated GIF. It's my first, mm -hmm. so I'm quite proud of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, Bao Bao in German means construction. Con bao, construction. Bao Bao, construction, construction. The title actually comes from this which wasn't just the title of the show, it was actually a sign that is normally hanging outside the Contemporary Art Museum in Leipzig, where it serves as the sign for the Museum Cafe, which is a work of mine. Um, so I think this is 2014, I'm not entirely sure, probably, <laughs> it's the winter. Um, uh, the, 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 sh the acronym for the museum is ZF, ZFJK, ZFJK, yes. So Museum of Contemporary Art Leipzig uh, invited me to do uh, an exhibition and it was before the playing, before the instrument and you know I was really thinking of this idea of functionality and trying to find a different format for making uh, you know, artworks that could be used very simply or inhabited in different ways. And um, uh, for a whole set of reasons, I couldn't really do that in the gallery, in the galleries. You know, I couldn't make things that people could sit on or I couldn't make things that could be used for many different reasons, for insurance reasons, for the fact that they needed to have, you know, gallery attendance everywhere, which they didn't have, etc. So then I proposed that instead I make their cafe Meaning, I make an exhibition that functions as the cafe, because in the cafe, there's not the same insurance rules, of course. And I just thought, you know, like, what happens if you make something that, you know, in one way I can talk about it in a very simple way, you know, like, there's an artwork that can be used as a bench, 
there's another artwork that can be used as a table. There's an artwork that is somehow like a wallpaper or like lights. Altogether, it's a solo exhibition, but actually, you only ever encounter it as a cafe, as a functioning cafe. Then there's like no pretense in a way, no? It is what it is. Um, so that's what Baba is. Um, I have to say that the life of this cafe, it took a very long time for this thing to happen. So the life of this cafe first uh, started as a fiction. This is a book by James Langdon, who I mentioned earlier, the graphic designer who I um, not only hugely admire, but is also a great and precious collaborator. Um, chapter five of James's book, which is imagining a utopian design school, chapter five designs the refectory of the school. And the refectory is something like this. Um, so it started in fiction. Um, the Everything is served in bowls in Café Baobao. Uh, the bowls are a sort of edition of mine, which works in different ways. It's also an instrument to tell the future, as you know that you can do with coffee. Uh, so there's little bowls for medium bowls, big bowls, whatever, from soup to coffee, whatever you may need. Um, I have lots of stories to say about this. Every single one of these uh, pieces or fragments um, tries to... Uh, interrogates or uh, um, refers to um, objects that got caught in legal battles in history. So that's where all of these things somehow come from. But it's also just a cafe with a menu where you can... Uh, it, still, it still exists. I don't know how long it's going to last because also, you know, an exhibition budget, it doesn't make a cafe that lasts for years and years and years. You know, things are not really made in the same way. But I haven't been there for a bit, but uh, a friend of mine who was doing a show in this museum went a month ago and said that it was still, like, somehow holding on. Nothing's ripped or destroyed. I, what I assume is that when it reaches the end of its life, it just gets removed, and that's that. But, um, yeah. Um, okay, these benches maybe one story, is these benches, which... Um, can you see this thing here? This my mysterious metallic frame. This is a picture from 1948 from uh, another museum founded by artists, but this time an actual museum, not a gallery, so that has a collection. It's called Museum Sztuki in Łódź in Poland. Perhaps... Um, you know, one of the first times a group of artists got together to found the museum for the future because they felt misrepresented by the museums that existed. Um, two of them were Katrina Kobra and Vladislav Streminsky. They literally called all their friends, uh, put together all their colleagues, and put together a collection for this museum and got a building from the city and decided that if it was going to be the museum for the future, then art could not be exhibited in the same way that it had been in the museums of the past. So they invented, Vladislav Streminsky invented uh, an architecture and a display architecture, you know, hence my interest, um, specifically in a room that he called the neoplastic room. In 1948, this is the only image of this room because it was destroyed two years later, then reconstructed by somebody who had been there, uh, his student, but we don't actually know how well or not well, then destroyed again, and the student made drawings from his memories of the reconstruction from which the present one, the one that is there today, uh, was built. So anyway... I've spent the last two years trying to understand what this thing is. So, when I first saw the image, I thought it was a bench. I thought that Radius Astrominsky had realized that you didn't just need to display artworks. People also needed to be in the room, and they needed somewhere to sit. And I thought, how amazing. And there'd be display for people and display for artworks. So each one of the benches in Café Baobao is a different object that could be this, if it was seen from a particular angle. They're called spatial compositions because that's what he called his furniture. So I've kind of you know, made every possible declination. Of course, I made them quite comfortable. They're upholstered of what this thing might be. And of course, they all exist at the same time. 
which is fine because there are somehow models or copies or doubles or I don't know, like something like that. Uh, there's 10 of them. So a special composition, one to, well, no, three to 10, because I, I assume he made two, the first two. So I just continue the series. But I'm still making um, somehow work with it because eventually I did go to Wuch and I actually spent quite a lot of time in the archive museum of Museum Wuch and I found it. And it still exists, and it's called Special Composition. It's not at all a bench, like not at all, <laughs> of course. It's made out of wood, first of all, which I really couldn't tell. And it's a display, but a display that never had artworks on it. You know, once you see it, it's clear. The scale is wrong. You can't sit on it. It's too low. It's literally like this. So it's made to display objects, but I guess it was so beautiful in some ways that uh, no objects were put on it. Now, something else that's interesting about this and goes back to my legal uh, you know, interest in the histories of objects is that because it was made as a display and the room was made as architecture, they are not works in the collection of the museum. The museum owns them in their care, but doesn't own them as objects. So they have a duty of care to maintain them, but they cannot sell them. Or when they lend them, there are these super complicated contracts that have to be developed because it's like lending a piece of your architecture, literally. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because of course, it is clearly an art object as well. You know, it's like classifications are not exclusive. You can be many things at the same time. Anyway, after seeing it, after discovering the rest of the story, I finally made the last two. These are quite recent. They're only a couple of months old, and they're called average spatial compositions. So they're the average of all of the ones that I found and all of the ones that I made, and they are museum benches. So they somehow carry this legacy into an imaginary. Um, I've got like different views of them. So yeah, I mean, the, the construction is of course a bit more complicated because uh, they're just all of these things together. Um, the, the, the billboard is, um, a sort of layered map of all of the things I've done around these as well. Okay, so now on to something else. Um, I mentioned Eastside projects. I've mentioned cumulative labor. Now there's a scale at which these issues um, that I've been working on come together, which is in the founding of a small organization called, uh, called Eastside Projects. Uh, with a group of uh, five people. Uh, so a founding collective comprising Gavin Wade, who I already mentioned, Ruth Claxton, Simon and Tom Bloor, and James Langdon, also the graphic designer. We thought, what happens if you invent an organization that works in the same way that we want to work, meaning it works cumulatively, it's a support structure, both for the production of art and the perception of art. What happens if we found a gallery in which the gallery itself is also an artwork? It's a collective cumulative artwork. Um, and the third or fourth question or 17th question <laughs> that we asked, but perhaps the most important one was asking this very simple question. What happens if at the end of the show we don't take things down? We don't do all the work that has to do with deleting the traces of what has happened in order to create a protected and neutral space for the next person. What happens if you don't do it? Um, so the result <laughs> was these set projects. This is how it was constructed. So we thought, you know, the, the founding collective starts with the building of the gallery. Of course, it's cumulative. You get a building, it's never empty, but you have to start with like really functional things like columns or a heating system. Our office, an artwork by Heather and Ivan Morrison, the studios, the toilets, the entrance and the front desk, a curtain to separate a cinema space, a billboard, uh, inside the library, uh, a column, and then there's also, whoops, oh no, damn, there's also a billboard outside. Well, okay, you don't see it. Um, the thing like that was actually on the facade. This was actually the length of time that it took us to do our first exhibition. So the first exhibition was actually the building site. So we took this premise quite seriously, right? You construct the gallery as a collective artwork. You invite artists to come into a space, which is more or less empty, and start adding things to make it functional. 
that is both an exhibition and a gallery. So we start with that was our office for the first five years. Again, an artwork by Heather and Ivan Morrison. It's called Pleasure Island. It, of course, doesn't pass any health and safety. Um, but it's an artwork, so it's fine. So what you see now is somehow documentation of the first exhibitions. We used the four-color printing as a way of explaining the evolution of the space. So I'm not going to talk like individually about each exhibition that we've done. We've now been open for seven years, so that's you know quite quite a lot. The my role within this as a member of the collective was to think of you know literally the physical fabric of the space. But the main idea, of course, is that everything is part of the program. Also the graphic design, the architecture, the accountancy, and that we try as a group of artists together to create this kind of collective temporary utopia, um, you know, uh, and think of the gallery as a sculpture, you know, a collective sculpture. So um, uh, somewhere in the middle of this process, this happened, the space became a white cube because an artist, Mike Nelson, to be precise, decided <laughs> that after five years of accumulation, um, it was time to take things away. So he made a perfect white cube. And I think it was the beginning of something else, um, which you know we can discuss like another time, perhaps. But of course, you know things change, and when you say something that you really try and work according to, you know, five years later, it's not the same thing. It just isn't because the world is different. You're different. Anyway, uh, this is something about the images. So James Langdon, who I think is a genius, has actually uh, managed to develop a graphic language to try and explain this idea of accumulation. So photographs I've taken by our photographer Stuart Wibbs, every time from exactly the same place, and they're only printed in one color every time. So this is one week, the next week, a week later, a week later, a week later. So what you see through the printing technique just by separating the four-color printing pr process and doing things in between, you see what you can't see with your naked eyes. You, know, you see the archive, you see the history, you see all the people who came before you. And everything is ghosted that doesn't last. Obviously, everything that becomes very dark is the stuff that actually lasts a lot longer. Now, I think, I assume I'm running out of time. Um, I'll finish with some of our publications. I'm quite committed to you know, developing graphic projects as well as uh, spatial projects. And you know, this is something that James has really dedicated a lot of work to. And uh, we're now working quite closely on a book. But um, um, after five years of us being open, I really thought that we had to find a way of evaluate our experiment. You know, usually in, um, in the UK, you get, you get funding by Arts Council. You have to write a report. Um, and I thought, you know, what happens if this report is made in public, with the public? You know, we might as well invite all the people who have worked with us to tell us what they really think. So um, we also started with the overprinting on that, using it as a commentary. So we publish a user's manual that explains not just how we have conceived the space, but somehow how it works. During the evaluation event, we were able to go back to our manual and literally take notes, um, um, trying to listen to what wasn't working or what was working or what was missing or what was too much, which then became the new user's manual using these overprinting technique. Right, this is clear, no? It's all printed in black and white, and then you start adding onto the text things that work or things that don't work or just simply things that are missing. At the moment, the user's manual, well, at the moment of these images, it was used, it was uh, classified as words, as a compendium of words, almost as if we had a dictionary, like we developed a language. Um, again, this is not just for the public. You know? The manual is also something we can send artists who we want to work with, because it, the space is really difficult to understand unless these things are explained to you, and the manual is just one way of doing it. And uh, of course, overprinting is another way of explaining uh, the space in the same way that it actually functions. That's it. But maybe I should end with a nicer image, like this.
Yeah, if you have any questions, of course. I know I covered quite a lot of ground. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead.